You can save every day by shopping at Whole Foods Market. Seriously, don't just go for the big sales. Walk the store and see the savings for yourself. In the seafood department, look for the yellow low price sign on Whole Foods Market Responsibly Farm Salmon. This fish is perfect for the grill. Buttery, fatty, yet lean, nice thick fillets. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it, and I know I can get it at a great price. There's so many ways to save at Whole Foods Market. Now you know. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hi, it's Mignon Fogarty, Grammar Girl, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about why you should say almost all and not most all. I have a meaty middle about how you can make your writing better by paying attention to your sentence structure. And finally, I have a tidbit by Samantha Enslin about why we call a person or an animal a dark horse. And now for your quick and dirty tip. Alan Kay wrote, quote, There is a phrase, or a pair of similar phrases to be precise, that I have heard for years that drives me absolutely crazy as it's grammatically incorrect, but I have yet to ever hear one grammarian ever address it. It's most every or most all. To use, for example, the sentence, most every politician believes the president, is clearly grammatically incorrect and logically nonsensical. In the same breath, one is discussing most politicians and then every politician, two different subsets of politicians. I believe that what the users of this phrase are actually intending to say is almost every, which makes perfect sense. I hear this phrase, and to a lesser extent, most all, to an increasing degree. Please help nip them in the bud, unquote. Alan is correct. The phrase most every does arise from people shortening almost to most, which clearly seems to change the meaning. I found many admonitions against such usage in books from the early 1900s, and a few in my more recent usage guides. The usage notes at dictionary.com explain that using most to mean almost arose in the 16th century in England, and it's common in informal speech, but rare in edited text. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Say almost every such and such, and almost all so-and-sos, and not most every or most all. Before we get to the meaty middle about sentence structure, I have exciting news. Writer's Digest magazine just named the Grammar Girl website one of their 101 best websites for writers. It's a huge honor, and I am absolutely thrilled. If you've never visited my website, maybe now's a good time to check it out. It's at quickanddirtytips.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to my email newsletter, and then you'll get links to the new Grammar Girl articles every week. Scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and click Newsletters. And now, on to the meaty middle. The human brain is wired to look for patterns. Patterns like the golden ratio found in art and nature are pleasing to the eye. And patterns in writing can make your words more pleasing and memorable to your readers. 
Speechwriters know all about patterns because many common rhetorical devices rely on patterns. Some of the most famous pieces of writing use patterns, and that's probably one reason we remember them. From Julius Caesar's I Came, I Saw, I Conquered, to Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, patterns helped deliver a strong message. When someone says it was the best of times, almost everyone knows that it refers to Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, and what follows is, it was the worst of times. You may not know the rest of the opening lines by heart, but listen to them now to see how Dickens continued the pattern, the parallel sentence structure, to draw in his readers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. By following each clause with one that is its opposite, best, worst, wisdom, foolishness, and so on, Dickens is also using a rhetorical device called antithesis. Winston Churchill used the same method of starting each clause with the same words, sometimes called anaphora, in one of his famous speeches from World War II, quote, We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Note how similar each clause is. With Dickens, each clause starts with, it was the. With Churchill, each clause starts with, we shall. Another word for this kind of pattern is parallelism. You may not be writing a novel or writing a speech to rouse an entire country, and you may not always want to use heavy hitters such as anaphora or antithesis, but you should still embrace parallelism whenever possible, not only because it makes your writing powerful and memorable, but also because when it's missing, many readers will get a vague sense that something is wrong. They'll stumble over your writing because, as I said earlier, the human brain homes in on patterns. We see them even when they aren't there, so we'll be expecting sentences to follow a pattern, almost filling in the blanks before we even get to them. Take this sentence, for example. Kids these days are obsessed with taking pictures of themselves, hanging out with friends, and check Instagram to see if anyone liked their posts. I stumble when I get to check because it's not parallel. I expect to read checking Instagram. We have the gerunds taking pictures and hanging out, but then the sentence switches to a verb, check. You can easily make that sentence better by replacing check with a gerund. Kids these days are obsessed with taking pictures of themselves hanging out with their friends, and checking Instagram to see if anyone liked their posts. Articles such as A and The can also throw off parallelism. They should come before only the first item in a series or before all items in a series. For her birthday, we gave Ashley an iPhone, a makeup kit, and a Facebook account of her own. Or, for her birthday... 
we gave Ashley an iPhone, makeup kit, and Facebook account of her own. Parallelism, or lack of it, becomes even more obvious when you have items in a bulleted list. Consider this example. When you close the store for the night, and then the bullets follow, the doors should be locked. Empty the till. Next, in the logbook, record the money. Alarm, set it. None of those bulleted items use the same structure, and the list is hard to read. You can improve the instructions by giving more detail in the introductory sentence and making each bullet use the same structure, like this. When you close the store for the night, take these steps in the following order, and then the bullets follow. Lock the doors. Empty the till. Record the amount of money from the till in the logbook. Set the alarm. See how much better it was with all of those parallel? Lack of parallelism is not only a common style error in prose. It's also one of the most common errors on resumes. So remembering to check your parallelism can help you get ahead in your current job or find a new one. That article was by me, Mignon Fogarty, and originally appeared in Office Pro Magazine, a publication of the International Association of Administrative Professionals. And now, on to our tidbit about following suit. Have you ever been uncertain about how to act in a new situation? Ever thought you'd see what others were doing and then do the same? If you have, you've done what card players have been doing for years. You've followed suit. To follow suit means to imitate someone's actions, as in Emma started her homework right after school and Carrie grabbed her laptop and followed suit. The term comes from card games that require players to play a card of the same suit as the person before them. In Uno, for example, if the person before you plays green, you can play green. In Crazy Eights, if the person before you plays a heart, you can play a heart, and so on. As early as the mid-1800s, the term was being used both in card games and in the metaphorical sense. The standard Hoyle from 1887 describes the rules of pinochle like this, quote, When a card of any other suit excepting trumps is played, a player is not compelled to go over it, but must follow suit if possible. If he can't follow suit, he must trump it. If he can neither follow suit nor trump it, he can play any card he chooses, unquote. And an 1852 article in the New York Times describes a laughable scene featuring a man who'd been sold a fake steamship ticket. Spotting the chap who had sold the fake ticket, quote, he leapt off the vessel and seizing him by the throat, demanded the return of his money, which was instantly forked over, unquote. The thief then made a speedy exit, the article says, fearing that other victims would, quote, follow suit, unquote. And that was your tidbit. The phrase follow suit originally came from card games. That piece was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or tweeting at dragonflyedit. That's it for this week. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. If you're looking for some new podcasts to try, come to my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Not only can you find all my articles, but you can also check out the other Quick and Dirty Tips hosts. This week, Everyday Einstein is answering a question for a klutz 
who wants to know how many ceramic mugs he'd have to break each year before he'd just be better off with a disposable coffee cup. This podcast was recorded in the studios at the Reynolds School of Journalism at the University of Nevada. That's all. Thanks for listening. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.